Good morning. Good morning. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we praise you for this beautiful, cool, crisp fall day. We thank you for the gift of each other, this opportunity to worship you once again in spirit and in truth. We come to you as we are, our hearts overflowing with thankfulness and praise at who you are and all the blessings you have bestowed upon us, as well as with hearts weighed down and burdened by the concerns of this world, the various troubles in our lives. We lift it all up to you at your altar and place it there now. We ask that you would speak to us now a word that is challenging and convicting, a word that is liberating and freeing, a word of healing and hope and transformation. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for today is the assigned gospel lesson, namely Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. My sermon title for today is The Power of a Receipt. The Power of a Receipt. This morning's text comes immediately on the heels of Jesus' third passion prediction in Mark's gospel. A passion prediction, in case you have forgotten, is simply when Jesus clearly states and predicts his own upcoming passion, that is, his rejection and suffering and death. The first such instance is found here in Mark's gospel, back in chapter 8, verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, meaning he himself, must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. The second passion prediction is found in chapter 9, verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. The third and final one is found in today's chapter, just prior to our text, actually, this morning, beginning in verse 32. This one is the most specific and detailed of the three. I'm not sure why it was left out of our lectionary, that is the assigned reading for today. I can only guess that they thought that we, much like the original disciples, are just tired of hearing about it. It's just so depressing and it seems so wrong. But the third one reads thusly. He took the twelve aside again began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. <clears throat> then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. I think the reason Jesus has to keep on saying the same thing over and over and over again is because his disciples at times can be so obtuse and thick-headed and forgetful, particularly about the uncomfortable and central place of suffering and death in his ministry, that it bears repeating ad nauseum. 
the disciples in Mark's gospel never quite get it. And truth be told, sometimes, oftentimes, neither do we. Indeed, what these three passion predictions have in common is not only their repetitive similarity, but also the disciples' telling reaction to each of them. On the heels of the first one, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him until Peter turns and rebukes Peter by calling him Satan for his arrogant ignorance. On the heels of the second one, Scripture records, but they did not understand what Jesus was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And so they then proceeded to argue among themselves about who was the greatest of them all. Before Jesus explains, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Also, following this third and final occurrence, the exact same thing occurs, which verifies yet again that the disciples not only don't embrace the gruesome fate of Jesus' execution, but also don't understand the uncomfortable consequences for their own lives and ministries. James and John, in verse 35 of our text this morning, rather impudently approach Jesus and make a demand of him. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine making such a demand of Jesus? But how many of us do likewise? Treating God as if he is a divine Santa Claus or a magical arm on a heavenly slot machine. Existing merely or primarily to dispense our whimsical desires and guarantee our unfettered prosperity and public glory. Thank God they seem to have caught Jesus on a patient day. No more Satan name calling. No, here he actually replies, well, what is it you want me to do for you? They respond unabashedly, I might add, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in all your glory. I can almost see Jesus slightly smiling as he sighs. You do not know what you are asking. And clearly they don't. They are not blessed as we are with 2,000 years of hindsight and knowing how the story progresses and turns out. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He asked them. Full of foolish confidence, they reply, yes, we are able. They don't realize that Jesus' cup and his baptism are death. They think he's speaking of glory and authority and power and might, which he is, but only paradoxically through the horrific suffering of death on a cross. They haven't really heard, understood, or embraced any of these three passion predictions that he has just clearly stated. They're actually asking for death, and they don't even know it. The cup that I drink, you will drink, Jesus presciently says in verse 39. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. At least one of them is going to die a martyr's death. All right. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. We all know for whom those seats were reserved. The two thieves crucified with Jesus in a matter of weeks, if not days, one on either side, one repentant, the other 
not. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. Presumably because they got to Jesus first with their request ahead of the rest. So Jesus teaches them all yet again the consequences, the ramifications of his horrible fate for their lives and ministries. You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you, how often does he have to say this, must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus teaches us every step of the way the exact opposite of what society and the world teach. In the world, it's a race to the top. In the gospel, it's a race to the bottom. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. The exalted shall be humbled. The humbled shall be exalted. The greatest shall become servants. Servants shall be the greatest. Those who are full now will be hungry, and the hungry will be full. Those who are laughing now are going to weep very soon, while those who are weeping now will rejoice and laugh. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Woe to you that are rich, for you have already received your consolation. Woe to you when everybody speaks well of you, for so they did to the false prophets. But blessed are you when people revile you, persecute you, and speak evil against you. We hear all that stuff Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And yet Monday through Saturday, we spend all of our energy and effort, time and labor, trying to be first, exalted, greatest, full, laughing, rich, and popular. So we claim Christian principles, but live according to worldly values, which will place us at the bottom rung in God's coming kingdom. Jesus, my friends, has to say this stuff so often, over and over and over again, because he knows it goes against every fiber of our being, every grain of our inclinations, every cellular component of our DNA, and every earthly example we are taught to emulate. At least the earliest Christians were accused of the right things in Acts chapter 17. These people have turned the world upside down. And as always, Jesus turns our focus back to himself and models our lives on his, our ministry on his, when he says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He memorably concludes in verse 45, And to give his life, as a ransom for many. I like this last verse, particularly the second half. To give his life as a ransom for many. The dictionary defines ransom as a consideration paid or demanded for the release of someone or something from captivity. Or to free from captivity or punishment by paying 
a price. One of the chief doctrines of our Christian religion, along with the incarnation and the resurrection and a few others, is something called the atonement. To atone for something is simply to make up for something, for some wrong. As Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ atoned for us, specifically atoned for our sins. He made up for them and their offense. Since the Bible never explicitly lays out the details of precisely how this took place, there are several different theories of atonement throughout Christian history. The most common one, it's what's often called substitutionary atonement, meaning somehow, some way, Jesus atoned for us and for our sin by substituting for us, by somehow in the divine drama taking our place. The chief scriptures to support this particular view of the doctrine are our first lesson assigned for today from Isaiah 53. It's pretty famous. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and by his bruises or stripes we are healed. And of course, this last verse of today's gospel lesson, to give his life as a ransom for many, something paid to release somebody else from captivity. As commonly understood, this sort of transaction, some sort of transaction has occurred between God and Jesus, or perhaps Jesus and the devil, which pays the price for our sin and frees us from captivity, namely captivity to sin, death, and the devil. Because the price has been paid, you see, the transaction has been accepted. We are now free because of that transaction. On February 1st, 1960, at the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, four African-American college students in Greensboro, North Carolina, sat down at the Woolworths counter for lunch, knowing full well they would not be served a meal because of the segregation laws current in the South and indeed other parts of the country at that time. This was the very first instance of what became a national protest movement of so-called sit-ins. I remember reading about this instance and its historical significance for integration in our nation back when I was in high school and college. What I did not know about, however, was a telling detail I read in a 50-year anniversary account back in 2010. Apparently, one of the four students had purchased something in another part of the store, an article of clothing, I believe, and he had kept the receipt. When they sat down together at the lunch counter, they were told bluntly, we don't serve you here. The one gentleman produced his receipt and handed it over and said, I beg to differ. Somebody say, I beg to differ. I beg to differ. That's a decent strategy, an effective tactic, if you ask me. He produced evidence via a receipt that proved an earlier transaction in this same store indicating that he was already served, already accepted, and which now paved the way for future service and future transactions. His receipt, in effect, said, I got a right to be here. 
If you think about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, my friends, the fact that he himself, his life, ransomed you and me, and the fact that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed, I think you and I have a receipt. This receipt vouches that a valid transaction has occurred, which renders us acceptable and fit to do business. This receipt says a price has been paid and the balance of our sin is zero. This receipt says that you and I got a right to be here. This receipt says the ledger has been effectively balanced and the debt is now gone. The receipt, as all good receipts do, has a name, a date, and a time of purchase. The name of the cashier, if you will, the person at the register, is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Son of David, Son of Man, Son of God. The date on the receipt is in the spring of the year, March or April, in the year A.D. 29 or 33. The purchase reads, your sin, your guilt, your shame, your brokenness, your faults, and all of your flaws. The receipt is stamped, Colossians 2 verse 14. Having canceled the bond which stood against us with all of its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The receipt also reads, tellingly, no refunds, no exchanges. The small print further elucidates Hebrews 9, verses 12 and 26. He entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats or calves, but his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. And he has appeared once for all time and all people to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. My friends, when the world tells you we don't serve you, you pull out your receipt and say, I beg to differ. When the world tells you that you're not good enough, handsome enough, pretty enough, smart enough, talented enough, courageous enough, diligent enough, deserving enough, you don't have what it takes. You're not acceptable or merit worthy. You're just an old, decrepit, inadequate, incompetent, good for nothing. You just produce that receipt and you say, I beg to differ. When they tell you you can achieve your goals, your dreams, your hopes, or your aspirations, when they tell you that you'll never be happy, you'll always be alone and lonely, depressed and despairing, when they tell you that you are doomed and hopeless and garbage and trash, you just pull out your receipt, and what are you going to tell them? I beg to differ. When Satan claims your prayers are unacceptable and unheard by God, when he tells you that God and the universe are simply too big and vast to notice your insignificant life and problems, when he tells you that you can't do miracles, you can't heal others, you can't feed the hungry, you can't clothe the naked, you can't care for the poor and vulnerable, you can't visit those who are sick and in prison, you can't affect the world at large because you can't even control your own home and your own family. You just pull out your receipt stamped with 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, from Genesis to Malachi, Matthew to Revelation. Look him dead in the eye and say, what? I beg to differ. And then you tell Satan, I got a right to be here. We got a right to be here. Your receipt proves a previous transaction which guarantees future service. Your receipt proves a previous transaction which guarantees future service. The power of a receipt. The power of a receipt. Amen.
your support of our ministries here at St. Philip is much appreciated.